0: Hey there everyone, from beautiful Fort Collins, Colorado, halfway between Cheyenne and Denver, and 5,003 feet above sea level, I'm Jeff Haber, and you're listening to No Bed of Roses.
1: No Bed of Roses is brought to you by Conexus. Maybe your company is creating video content, or you're a brand looking for that coveted direct connection with viewers. Maybe you're an established YouTube creator, or you're just starting out. Conexus Interactive Web Video Solutions enables viewers, while watching your videos, to simply tap on the items they're interested in, directly connecting them to the merchant's shopping cart to easily purchase those items. This all happens without ever leaving the video experience and without ever leaving the site where they started watching the video in the first place. Conexus shoppable video content works using any browser on any device. No download, no plugin, nothing to install. Interactive video like you've always wanted it. Find out more at Conexus.com. That's K-E-N-X-U-S dot
0: Welcome back, everyone. If you've ever taken a family road trip here in the U.S., you may well be familiar with the last name of today's guest the granddaughter of the founder of an American iconic roadside experience, has reclaimed her family's namesake business, one that is uniquely American. Stephanie Stuckey brings unbridled passion, joy, and humor to all that she does. And her resurrection of Stuckey's is, just like those family road trips with kids squished into the way back, a journey full of challenges and a look back at where she's been, where she is, and where she's going. So here's Stephanie Stuckey. There are so few things that are, that are authentic anymore. To me, it's just immensely appealing.
2: That's such a good point because in this era of social media, there's all these personas out there that people just create for an online avatar or presence, and it's not real. I think about 90%, maybe more, of what we see on social media is just not real. And I think that's why there's been a connection with the Stuckey's brand and our comeback efforts because, one, there's definitely a nostalgic connection that people of a certain era have with the brand, but even people who aren't of an age where they remember shopping at Stuckey's when we were really at our prime, they connect with the authenticity and the vulnerability and the willingness to just put it
0: out there. Absolutely. It it is an authentic piece of Americana. You can't market your way to that. You can't you you can't fabricate that. I mean, you can try. There are you know there are brands that have been kind of successful and in creating a, a faux authentic experience. It's that's a contradiction right there, but this is the real deal. And, and, and you've got the name and and now the business. And it, it seems my sense the gumption and the fire in the belly to make it all happen. But let me ask you to back up a little bit. There's your history. There's your family history. There's the business history. I know it's all intertwined, You grew up in the business. Is that fair to say, Stephanie?
2: No, actually not at all. Did not grow up in the business. Never thought I would be involved with Stucky's. I was number four of my dad's five kids. I was number five of my grandfather's grandchildren. The company was sold the year before I was born to a corporation, a large corporation. It fell out of family hands for decades. I grew up, Thinking I was going to be in politics, which is what I did. I was an elected office as a state representative for 14 years. And then I was an environmental attorney and head of sustainability for the city of Atlanta. So had a very different life trajectory and never thought I would be running the family business it's been a crazy journey.
0: I guess I should say I misspoke because when I say you grew up in the business in that, it's it was a family business. It was in your home. But even then, it sounds like you were young when the family sold out of it. Is that right?
2: I wasn't even born. That's, yes. That's pretty it was young. It sold Not in 1964. <laughs> okay. The brand always had my name on it, so there was that connection, obviously. It fell out of family hands for over two decades, and my father got the company back in 1985 when I was in college, and he was running several other companies successfully, and the company that had bought the company that had bought Stucky, so it had been a couple of mergers and acquisitions Along the way, and at that point, Stuckey's had plummeted and was hemorrhaging cash, and they were happy to unload themselves of this company. My father got Stuckey's back for for next to nothing.
0: What What an experience having to get your right. get your name back and uh, yes, and, and get it back yeah. for hey, we got a deal on the name. We got it for next. It's your name. It's your business. Yes. What? So, Stephanie, what was your dad doing? What line of work was he in? You said there were a couple of mergers, and it it all sort of came home again. But what was he doing?
2: Well, my father like me, or I guess I'm like my father, I pursued a career in public service and he had been in Congress. He served for 10 years in the U.S. Congress from Georgia, left that to run a company that he founded, which was Interstate Dairy Queen Corporation. He had the franchise rights to all of the Dairy Queen stores in the U.S. on the interstate highway system.
0: Holy moly. Yes. Wow.
2: That was my father's company. People associate him, of course, with Stucky's because it's his name. But really what he did so incredibly well and was financially very successful with was Dairy Queen. And he ran Dairy Queen for almost 40 years, sold Dairy Queen in two thousand. 12 to Warren Buffett, who owns American Dairy Queen. Warren Buffett did not buy Stucky's, (laughs) was not interested. And so Stucky's was just this afterthought. What do you do with Stucky's? My father and his business partners did very well with this sale of Dairy Queen and they were older and they retired. And they left Stucky's with a small crew running the company, did not have a lot of financing for the company. There was no marketing budget. There was no CEO. At that point, none of the store, well, the stores were never owned or operated by the company. They, we did not have corporate-owned stores. So all,
0: all franchises
2: all franchises. So the assets at that point were really just the brand and a distribution facility that was rented, three sales reps that service the stores, a CFO, a vice president, a warehouse staff of two with occasional seasonal pickers picking warehouse items. The definition the of a, company. Uh, that's
0: a definition of a skeleton staff. I'm kind of stuck yeah. on, on the Oracle from Omaha. You know, your, your dad, I don't know if it's your dad's team or representative talking a Buffett's team or if these are too yes. old school. Okay. So uh, I because, wish
2: it was my father hanging out with Warren. It would be an awesome story, not, right? <laughs> right? but my dad was excited that Warren Buffett's signature is actually on the paperwork, but they, they did not meet him, but it's a testament to my father that he, Ran the company so well that it would attract Warren Buffett's attention, and that he would want to acquire it. Warren Buffett loves Dairy Queen. I think he's had American Dairy Queen for decades. He's had that brand a very long time.
0: It's fair to say your dad was the king of the queen, at mm. least at least the interstate queen, right?
2: That's good, and it's a it's a good it's a good phrase because Stucky's is known for our King of the Road special, which is ninety nine cents two eggs, toast, and jam.
0: Come on now. The Grand Slam has nothing on you. Wait, wait, do it again. Is this Wait, is this now? 99
2: cent breakfast (laughs) special. We have a few stores that still offer that. And it's what's known in the industry as a loss leader. It gets people in the door. (laughs) You're not making money. It's like when they give you free refills of the big gulf at 7-Eleven or whatnot. It gets people in the door. And the whole idea is hopefully once they get in the door, they're going to buy $20, $30, $40 of other stuff. And- you take a loss on that one item, but it gets so, them. So what's in
0: the, the break? What's in the breakfast again for ninety nine cents? Two eggs, get- toast, and jam. Mama, right? That's a great.
2: That's a great breakfast. It's what crazy. More you need? Well, and I love that they have the jam, right? The little. I love the jam. The, of in, jam. In the In the is
0: the dollop. Is it in the little foil? The peel back foil. Uh, packet it is now. But when, no. when we
2: started the program, you'd have that dollop of in the Dixie, really in good l- preserves, yeah, and I'm sure the there cup. was a square of melted butter, right?
0: Yeah, fantastic. I think you just need a, I think you just need, if you throw a coffee in there, Stephanie, this is it. You're, you go from gold to platinum. It's ridiculous. It's,
2: we used to have a coffee club. I wish we could again, but our franchise system needs a lot of love. So we're just not equipped right now to manage a coffee club program, but we had a coffee club program and we had the most beautiful fire king mugs. They were part of the coffee club and you would take that mug. If you bought the mug, you would get free coffee at Stuckey's.
0: At any Stuckey's that you went into. Any Stuckies. Yeah. This is a beautiful thing. I love yeah, this. Yeah. And
2: those mugs are now going on eBay. I've seen them anywhere from 150
0: to $250. See, this goes right back to the authentic piece. I mean, this yeah. is so cool. It's so cool. They're
2: all over Instagram and they're huge in Japan. Is that crazy? I have all these- all these followers on Instagram from Japan who have the Stuckey's Coffee Club mug and Fire King, the manufacturer of the Milk Glass mugs, which these were Milk Glass Fire King mugs, was bought by a Japanese company. And they were producing them until about a decade ago. So they're very popular in Japan. Well, My dream is to have Stuckey's in Japan I was because just gonna, they already know our brand.
0: Yeah, I was just going to ask you. So I know that the, the Japanese in general are really keen on on authentic Americana, exactly what we're right. talking about. It's great that you're that you're looking at Japan. I worked for a company, Stephanie, for the Chaya Group in Los Angeles, and I, I opened the $7 million flagship, their restaurant in downtown LA. The great story about this company, real quickly, is it's now probably 480 years old, same Japanese family that opened a tea house almost 500 years ago in Hayama, Japan. It's still open is the Chaya Group. And they have Chaya Patisserie all over Japan. And they have Chaya uh, Venice, Chaya Beverly Hills, Chaya Downtown. The real quick story, and this is a case study in the Marshall School of Business at USC, is the owner of the company went into Starbucks early on in Santa Monica. He speaks broken English at best and was behind a couple in the queue going to the counter and goes to orders coffee, and she says, "Good morning, welcome to Starbucks. What can I get you, sir?" And he goes, "I have what they have." Points to you a couple. Uh, "Okay, great. That was uh, a latte. Let me get that for you." Next day, he comes back again. He's standing in the queue, gets the line, same barista, and she says, "Oh, hey, welcome back. Welcome back to Starbucks. What can I get you this morning?" "I have what they have." Same thing in his broken English, and she says, "Okay." Third day, he comes back. "Good morning, welcome to Starbucks. Hey, you know what? Let me. You want to try something different this morning?" And engages with this guy, right? His name is Yuji. And on the 4th day he does it again and 5th day he writes a letter to to Howard Schultz. And he says, "I had a, an amazing experience because of the genuine hospitality offered to me by your barista at the Starbucks in Santa Monica. Should you ever be interested in going to Japan," <sighs> I would love to talk to you. I want to tell you, Stephanie, it's over 3,000 stores in Japan. He owns Starbucks Japan. True story. I have goosebumps telling this to you and sharing this with you because it's that genuine, authentic hospitality, that connection between an hourly paid barista and international business guy. The
2: word you said that's so critical, hospitality.
0: It's a big deal. It's a big deal for me. I just did a a show and we're having a lot of discussions about A concept that I have, Stephanie, that I call the mutant hospitality gene. For people who have careers in hospitality, this is why we do what we do. We have this desire. It's it's something we can't shake. We need to be of service. I feel that Gene is in if not all of us and many of us, and in some of us, it's dormant and needs to be needs to be stimulated a bit. And if we could just tap into this mutant hospitality gene that I feel is in fact in all of us, we can probably raise the vibration of this planet a couple of notches and start to really see what it is to give genuine hospitality and receive Genuine hospitality and genuinely care for one another. What people I'm in hospitality steal that do all the time. I mean,
2: borrow. I'm going to borrow that.
0: It's all yours, Beaten. man. I want to. I want. I want to spread. I want to spread that word. That good news. Have you heard the good news? It's called the mutant hospitality gene. A colleague of mine, when I was at Four Seasons Hotels and Resorts, uh I was discussing this, and she looked at me. And she goes. Ah, you, can we call it magical hospitality, Gene? I said, no, there's nothing magical no, about it. No. It's a freaking it's mutation because mm-hmm. you need to have your head examined to be in this business because it is so challenging. It is so difficult. And you give and give, but you can't help yourself, Stephanie. You must do it. You must be of service and I feel that we can tap into that and exploit it in the best sense of the word. In, in It doesn't matter if you're a cop, if you're a trash person, yes. if you're a CEO, yes. it doesn't matter. It's everything we do is about hospitality, right? <laughs> I'm
2: doing the sorority yeah, girl thing. I'll take it. I'll take but it. we spent an hour talking about this yesterday in strategic planning for stuckies in mm-hmm. our strategery Love hospitality strategy. Yeah. that one word and it's not like you said it's a mutant because it takes a certain skill set when someone is being completely inhospitable to be kind to be outgoing to take that extra step hospitality is in the face of someone being really rude to you that you smile and you are pleasant and you're kind. And hospitality is when a visitor to this country comes for the third day in a row and you recognize him and you say, let me get your order. Let me suggest something for you because you remember that person and you treat them specially because you know they're a return customer and you're extra nice because you know they're a visitor from another country. And so you want to give them that special welcome. And that is what We talked about yesterday in strategic planning that that needs to be a guiding core value of Stucky's, hospitality. My grandfather had a saying, every traveler is a friend. And the reason I like that saying so much is not that it just plays on what we do at Stucky's, which is make road trips fun. But really, when you think about it, in its essence, we're all travelers. We're travelers through life. So everyone can relate to, every traveler is a friend. If you treat people like a friend, then your business will thrive.
0: This is everything. This right, is, it's everything. I, it, really, it really is. And one of the, I have a big dopey grin on my face, Stephanie, because I love, I hear it in your voice. And this is something that, again, I go back to authentic, you can't fake it. What was it about your grandfather that drew him to this business or to create this business? Was he a people person, Stephanie?
2: He was. He genuinely loved being around people. And what was special is that he really was welcoming to everyone. One of the points I like to bring out about Stucky's in the early years is we were in the Deep South, that's where we're based, during the height of segregation and the Jim Crow era, when many establishments, especially roadside establishments, were segregated and Stucky's was never segregated. So my grandfather really Welcomed and opened the doors to Stuckey's to everyone, okay. And, hold, hold on. this is yeah. some, this
0: is something we can't just we can't just gloss over. So, yeah. you're in, yeah, you are in the deep south, and you're saying that your grandfather, when did you guys open?
2: The first roadside shack. It really was a lean-to shed. It was 1937, but the first store would have been 1939, 1940, okay. and then really took off after World War II. World War II hit. He lost all the stores. He started selling candy to the troops, which is how he kept the, the business afloat and how he got access to sugar that had been rationed right. during the war and built his first candy plant during the war because he had to produce the candy and he had to box the candy. So when the war was over, GIs come home. They remember – Stucky's Candy and their ration kits, and they're having babies, and they're taking vacations, they're getting on the highway. And that's when he really started building the stores that people
0: remember. Hey, so Stucky's Candies were in in ration kits. I'm, I'm, I'm on the front lines yes. and I open my MREs, and my kit, and there's a Stucky's, uh, and you, Stucky's I, I, candy. Here's something you got to school me on too. When I went back to Texas, I got schooled quickly. Hey, uh, it's, it's pecan. A pecan is something you, is a can that you pee in. It's mm-hmm. not pecan. And I heard you and I've heard you say pecans, right? So is that, I
2: do say pecan. Wh-
0: what is, is that wh- what's right? What's wrong? And is it regional? Is it regional?
2: It is regional, but there are many Georgians, including my business partner, who say pecan. And in fact, seventy percent of Americans pronounce it pecan.
0: So you're an outlier, Stephanie. I'm an outlier.
2: There's actually four ways to pronounce it. Can you you come up with the four ways? Let's see. It's all how you put the accent. It's the emphasis
0: on the wrong syllable once again. Right? Emphasis on the
2: wrong syllable. Yeah, yeah,
0: the wrong syllable. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So
2: pecan. Right. Pecan. hmm Pecan.
0: Pecan, right. Pecan. There you go. And pecan. Can somebody go just sit down on that E? Pecan. A pecan? I need to
2: start saying pecan, pecan. and that will just pass, blow people's minds. Pass mind me some of those like, pecans, y'all. Yeah. And it cracks me up that people think that it somehow makes me an expert on syntax and correct pronunciation of a word because I'm in the business. I sell them, but I always like to joke what my grandfather would say we pronounce them however the the buyer wants us to pronounce them. Pecan when we pick them and pecan when we sell them. They're delicious. They're America's native nut. They're the only tree nut, snack nut native to the U.S.
0: That's an interesting bit of trivia. Yeah.
2: Almond, pistachio, macadamia, of course, Hawaiian. Now, uh,
0: here you go. You, t- you, you stood that A.
2: Native.
0: Pistachio. See, there was yeah. a little, you didn't go pistachio. 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 I pistachio. Hate those pistachios.
2: Pistachios. <laughs>
0: Now, you sound like you don't, you do not sound like a Georgia Peach to me, nor do you sound like a sorority Georgia Peach to me. You have, uh, it sounds, I'm from New York. You sound a little, a little more East Coast. Something when I was going on. A year there.
2: Old, my father got elected to Congress and I moved to Washington, D.C. So you have been all seeing a therapist ever since. It's been just... <laughs> intense therapy, getting over, right. growing up in a very, Supercharged political environment. My dad was in Congress during Watergate,
0: so he knew Leon Jaworski, huh? This he he was around. He, for, knew, he knew a everyone. lot of the
2: players, yeah. and he, and he was actually close to Nixon. He was a Democrat, but he was a Southern Democrat and was very conservative. Is he's still alive? He's he's still conservative in his politics.
0: Mm.
2: He knew a lot of those players, and I went to school with some of those kids. Like G. Gordon Liddy's son was a couple years ahead of me in school. So it's really fascinating to see this play out in the news and on the television. Everyone was glued to their television. And then actually knowing some of these people that my father was friends with, or I'd go to work with my dad and I would see them.
0: Jamie Raskin's father, also. Raskin's father was involved in the Pentagon Papers. I, I read that the other day, which was fascinating.
2: Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Daniel Ellsberg. He was. See,
2: and I went to school with Maria Sheehan and her dad, Neil Sheehan. Neil Sheehan, was yeah. A, yeah who yes. just recently passed away. That's so right. I, knew him very well. Maria was one of my best friends. So it's really interesting growing up in that world. And it was humbling because people would sometimes say, did you grow up just feeling like you were the big fish in a little pond of Eastman, Georgia with your family running Stuckys? First of all, we'd sold the company by the time I was born, but also, I grew up in Washington D.C. They no, they didn't give a rat's ass about Stuckies. <laughs> None of them had heard of Stuckies. They had. They thought it was this very colloquial roadside stand type thing. It was not high society. Not in cool
0: in the belt inside the Beltway, huh?
2: Yeah, I mean, I was going to school with uh, the Prince of Jordan was in my class. There were lots of them, diplomats, kids, Pentagon high ups, senators. Stuckies was just really not
0: that big a deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love how you say it with a laugh and I love the context of now how you, you know, this you think stucky's and you think, okay, this salt of the earth, and not saying that you aren't, you you sound salty and earthy. Um, yes, I'm salty. Oh, all at once, all, all <laughs> with a little sweetness mixed in there. Yeah, but that um, savory. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, we've got some umami in there. You got you, you want it all. Well, uh, we
2: are, you know, we were, you were talking about Japan. I yeah. know we're kind of going all over. No, but it's okay. The it's not mind works sometimes. It's all good. It's nonlinear. We are experimenting with... Flavors for pecans. We just bought a manufacturing facility, which is congratulations. Yes, thank you. Yes,
0: that's exciting. I'm really excited
2: to be making stuff. I think this country is getting back to making stuff. COVID taught us that if you have the supply chain where you're dependent upon foreign countries, and not to sound xenophobia xenophobic, because I definitely want to do business with other companies, and that we're we're global society, but at the same time, you need to be mindful of your supply chain. If there is a crisis you want to be able to get access to your core product. And our core product is the pecan. You can also control the quality and you have better control of the pricing and your margins. We are shelling pecans. We are making the candies. We're making snack line. And we are experimenting with teriyaki pecans, which is the most delicious snack I've ever had. I sampled them yesterday and I almost just sat down and ate like a three pound
0: bag. And when going back to what you were talking about, about just being a maker... And in this case, being a food maker and making stuff here in the United States, and that in that closed loop, it's great to have stuff that's that's pan that's global, but. I think now more than ever, you're spot on. It's super important to help go, help sustain not only local, but hyper local. And hyper local, right? I mean, it's, it's a big deal and it's, it's, it's certainly needed now more than ever uh, in and our lives. It's good lifetime. for the
2: environment. If you are producing close to where you are manufacturing, you know, if you're growing a product and then you're processing it right near where you're harvesting that product your carbon footprint is greatly reduced. No question. And then we're shelling on site. And then we're literally taking the shelled pecans from one manufacturing facility to the next, right next door where we've got the candy making operation. You can't get any closer than that.
0: And then what happens with the husks and the shells when you strip down the nut? What do you do with that?
2: Good question. So we just bought this. Did I ask my first good
0: question? We're, I oh, mean, you we're, asked we're a lot 30 minutes in, and I, that's a quick, really that's thinking first about the first one that got called loop, out, right? Hold oh, on, they're all hold brilliant. on, let me get, let me, yeah, there we go, that's there right. we go, there snaps, where do
2: snaps? Okay, so sparkles,
0: so we got sparkles too.
2: So, we do what the former owner did, which is they sell them not for a lot of money, but they do make a modest amount on selling them to a facility in Augusta, Georgia, which is right near where this facility is based in Rennes, Georgia. So in a nearby city for energy production in a paper making facility. Nice. I'm still learning how this manufacturing plant operates. So we bought a fully functional turnkey ready company that's been in business since nineteen thirty five. So everything has been running for decades. One thing we're doing is we are donating this week just to see if it works, some of the husk to a nonprofit organization. I won't give any more details because we got to see if this works. If it works, we'll do a, we'll do a splashy press thing. Okay. To a environmental nonprofit, and I as had a sustainability for city of Atlanta. This was very much my space, so I know that world. So one of my contacts in the environmental world said, what if we took your shells and used them as mulch?
0: Yes, mulch. Awesome. That was, yes.
2: Awesome. So we donated enough shells to use as a pilot project to see how it works. And if it works, then we'll roll it out more. Maybe we'll donate some. Maybe we'll sell some so we can at least. Cover our, our basic cost. So that's one way you can use them. Another way that I would really be interested in trying out is using the shells for wood chips or mixing them in with wood chips for barbecue.
0: Yeah, use them in the smokers. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: Google it. It, yep. it is a thing. Yeah. People do it. But what if we branded it Steckies, Pecan? Barbecue chips,
0: I love it, and That's I've, on my list. I've seen. I was thinking uh, the pathway up to the store, and, and uh, that would be the instead of crushed stone, you use the crushed husk and shell, yeah. and you're walking across
1: mm-hmm.
0: the the pecan path to paradise.
2: Pecan, mix it in some cement. And you have a nice know, little walkway there just
0: to do it crushed just crushed like that just yeah yeah just yeah, crush yeah, it, it, it look beautiful and earthy and wonderful and it's eco and it's sustainable but yeah i've seen it used as mulch and uh, i'm i'm glad to hear that i love the idea i don't know that i knew that you were the the doyen of sustainability for the city of atlanta that's cool you, I
2: was I was yeah. the head of sustainability for over 3 years.
0: So is would you say Stephanie that Atlanta is a fairly green city or will become a fairly green city? What what's what's going on sustainability wise in Atlanta? It
2: is. Atlanta really is a leader in sustainability and did not start with me. Started with Mayor Shirley Franklin who was the first mayor to appoint a director of sustainability and continued on with Mayor Kasim Reed, who I served under, and we did amazing things. We were at the Paris Climate Talks. We started the first electric vehicle program for the city that's in place to this day. At the time, it was the largest EV program in the Southeast. I'm not sure if it still holds that title. We created the first urban agricultural position, first director of urban ag position in the country.
0: What's the scope of that? For what's what is urban ag? Is that for for neighborhood farming or gardens, or what does that mean?
2: Activating city-owned property for community gardens and coordinating that whole effort. So getting access to free water supply, getting access to farming equipment, coordinating with local nonprofits, getting all the liability issues resolved. I mean, it was a couple of years to get that program. Created And then working with farmers markets, so access to local food, designing also public space. It was awesome and it was a good ride. Then we had a change of administration. I continued in the sustainability world working for an environmental nonprofit as their head of sustainability and was teaching at the University of Georgia School of Law, teaching sustainability and climate change when my dad's former business partners sent me an email. It was literally... I'm doing a reproduction, little. I mean, recreation. Is that, that's your sound effect. That's your sound effect. I got an, sound effect. Email, yeah. got an email one day. My dad's business partner said, "Hey, we've got some Stucky stock. Would you be interested in buying it?" Nobody wanted this, and they're like, "Oh, well, let's give it to Stephanie. Maybe she'll, maybe she'll buy this." They will
0: stock rue the day, Stephanie, for
2: this company that has been losing money for five years. I had the capital because I worked my whole life. And I'd also practiced as an attorney. And so I had money from my law practice, from being in the legislature, from working for the state. So I'd saved up my money over my career. And I had access to capital because I had good credit. I bought out my dad's partners. And six months later, I bought out my dad. And then I got a business partner because I realized I can't run this company by myself. And then we jointly bought a candy plant. And we Started turning a profit within six months. Come on. Despite COVID. And it's because it's a great brand. It is, is, a great is a great brand. Great brand. <laughs> we realized what was making money, which is the sale of the product. We can get into the stores later, but the stores are a fixer-upper. The stores are need some serious TLC. So if you stop at a Stucky's, some of them are going to be nice and really awesome. And some of them are going to be fixer-uppers.
0: Corporate stores, or are they still... No. No, so they're all franchisees, right? So- I,
2: I bought the company as is. Okay, I you know, had a big as is sign on it. With it's that, like well, when you buy and, something at a bargain price and caveat
0: emptor. Okay? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm.
2: I, I definitely a caveat emptor.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, it's like it's like buying something on sale. I bought Stuckies at a bargain basement price. I negotiated the price down because it had been losing money. I bought as is, so yeah. we don't own any of the stores. There's 67 locations, only 20 are standalone stores. The rest are co-branded. So you might pull over to a travel shop on the side of the road and it may be BP. It may be we're in a few pilots and you'll see a little section that's the Stuckies, and they pay a modest franchise fee to have that branded section. So we have 67 in total and some of them really look bad and some of them look good. We have some stores that really look awesome that I'm very proud of, but we don't own or operate any of them. What we do have is the brand. I bought a brand and then I bought a candy plant. So now I make the brand, the main product, and we have a distribution facility that we rent, but we operate that. So we distribute product to our stores and where we make our profit is from the sale of our product.
0: Are you thinking that you would open new stores? You're going to stay away from that and just focus on a product that you can distribute, not be brick and mortar right now. What what does that look like?
2: We grow at the speed of cash. We have to continue to drive revenue to be profitable enough to where we could afford to own and manage corporate stores. And it's not just owning the stores, right? It's managing the store. So that, to me, is a bigger challenge I have all sorts of real estate investors who come to me and say, well, I'm interested in investing in this building and we could have a Stuckey's, but I don't want to operate it. Well, that's the hard part. Of course. So I need owners and operators. So if anyone's listening out there, the easiest way for us to activate the stores is frankly the model where we don't own and operate. If there's a really good company out there that's interested in owning and operating the stores, that would be an ideal partner for us. But we are where we are. We are not interested in growing beyond our capacity, so we're trying to be very thoughtful in how we drive revenue at Stuckies. And right now we are focused on selling our product. And what's been fascinating is my perception when I first took over the company, and this is something entrepreneurs have to learn to do and really applies to anything in life, is look at what's working. And sometimes that means you're going to have to let go of your preconceived notions. And sometimes... There's a lot of emotion attached to that. So I'm really attached to the, the road trip and pulling over and stopping at Stuggies and having this amazing experience. We used to have talking minor birds and the dunking red birds, if you remember those, and little plastic Statues of boys, and you pull down their pants and they pee in your face. Like all these we, we
0: willy, the panties, the wee willie, the we willies, the, the chotskys, yeah, the the chos- chos- yeah chotsky heaven, the yeah,
2: geopet- chotsky, Like yeah. I was like all in, like I'm gonna be doing this, and then I realized yeah. we're not making any money. No, it's a right
0: skew nightmare, yeah, you don't want to do it. It's a
2: skew nightmare for those of you not understanding. I mean, not understanding that's like we in retail terminology, that's each individual item that you sell is a skew, and we have hundreds and hundreds of skews, and the Fascinating thing for us, which is true of a lot of companies, because we just did a skew rationalization exercise. Lots of fun. 20% of our product is driving 80% of our revenue. The old 2080 rule. So you have to take a literal machete to your inventory and say, this isn't selling. This isn't selling. Focus on what works. And what works is that little humble pecan log roll. We sell the heck out of the pecan log roll. It blows my mind. I look at our sales reports and I'm obsessive about checking the sales reports. We sell hundreds of cases of pecan log rolls like every week. People love them. It's a
0: beautiful thing. Look at in and out What do they have? a dozen things on their menu. If if, if they're yeah. lucky, look at Starbucks. You do what you're good at. You should just shed the rest and just focus on that and do it at such a high level.
2: And focus, focus, focus. I, speaking of, we've talk, talked about Starbucks a lot and it's a great brand and there's a reason why people talk about Starbucks. Howard Schultz, this is the story I heard and I hope it's true because it's excellent. He walked into a Starbucks they had music going. Remember they had this whole music program sure. and you could buy the yeah. music and they had the little cards yep, and they had a label they Had all this food yep. Yep. and all this stuff going on. And he's like, where's the coffee? We're about the coffee. We're selling coffee. We're getting rid of the music. We're getting rid of the extra food stuff. Like we're, we're going to minimize the menu. What's your core product? Our core product is pecans, a pecan log roll. Starbucks is coffee. We sell pecans. What I've done though, I've recognized You can still be all about the road trip and just be crazy, obsessed, fanatic about the road trip. And that's the story of the brand. That's the tale I tell when I talk about the brand. That's what makes us unique and special and different. But what we're really actually selling, what the customer's buying is pecan log roll but I can talk about it. Hey, remember going to Oklahoma and visiting your grandparents and you stopped at Stuckys and you pulled over and you bought a pecan log roll. And you know what? If you weren't young enough, old enough, I'm sorry, if you're too young to remember that experience, you can still think, wow, that's a really cool retro brand. And look at their packaging. And it's got like a little car and a road trip. And I think road trips are cool. This brand looks cool. I'm gonna try pecan log roll. I'm going to try their pecan snacks that are healthy because I really don't like all that sugar.
0: What you're describing reminds me of the moment, the ego moment in Ratatouille when Linguini asked him, what do you you want? And he says, give me perspective. You've seen this movie. Oh, of course. And
2: I have two kids and Uh, I I had about a decade there where I didn't do anything but watch g-rated movies and then i got hooked on them and now i i love it it's one of
0: the it's one of the greatest movies i don't care live action or not but if you're in the hospitality business this is a must movie that's that transportational moment stephanie he tastes that ratatouille and bang he's a kid again right just takes him right back you taste that pecan or pecan roll and you are you're gone That's it. You're gone. And if you're not gone because you haven't had it, the authentic DNA can take you there. That's that power of the IP that you have. That's that power of that experience. And I would argue a little bit with you about, yes, Starbucks sells coffee, but it's probably, for my money, one of the first brands that realized that, hey, you know what? We don't just sell coffee. We sell a lifestyle. They really changed the whole way that Americans consume and experience Coffee and community. They brought a very Italian approach, right? That's where Schultz was inspired by all of that. Mm-hmm. And aside from the fact that Italians, I mean, you know, when we visited, there's there's nothing is to go. I mean, it, it wasn't. You had your coffee at the bar. You it, you you stopped. You paused. It, there was time spent, and you know, Starbucks created that space, and and they did it very well. But. When it, when, That's
2: exactly what I'm saying. Stuckey's, yeah, yeah. is trying to create that same, yeah, yeah, yeah. experience. So thank you for clarifying that. We are selling pecans, but what what is the story of that? Yes. What is that connection? It's the road trip. We're the we're to the road trip. Experience, you know what Starbucks is to the coffee house experience, and right? I would—that's what I want. I, I
0: would say, Stephanie, there is a there is a, a strong vein of of a reconnecting with a notion of Americana that's that's lost, and that is that again that sense of family, that sense of community. It's interesting to hear, and I'm going to thread this back now that your grandfather in the Deep South in a time of of, of clear segregation, that he and when you started to tell me this, I thought, hold on a second. You're telling me there was not a colored only and a white only water fountain bathroom at a Stuckey's? That's mind-blowing to me.
2: Well, not only that, that African Americans could safely stop. And there's a great documentary on PBS, and it's based on a book, which I need to read, which is called Driving While Black. It talks about Travel for African Americans, and they go way back. They go back Green to book. slavery. Yeah. yeah, coming. Well, they come kind of go to you know on for the that, boat yeah. coming from Africa to this country. Like the prejudice in our society is so deep rooted. It goes back to those slave ships. You know, travel was so strongly linked with racism in this country. The South in the 1950s, being able to get from one place to the next was a dangerous thing. And they told the story of, with the Great Migration, so many African Americans fled the South as survival, went to Detroit, went to Chicago, went to so many of these Northern cities, but they had family that stayed behind. So they come and visit them. And it was a World that they had left behind, and some of the next generation weren't exposed to it until their families took these road trips and they're wanting to pull over and they couldn't. And they
0: can't. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. And so they had that's the Green Book, if you've yep. heard of that yes. or yeah. travel guide for, yeah. they call it Negro Travel Guide. Yeah. And it says where they could safely stop. Most of those establishments were owned by other African Americans, but some were like Stuckey's that you could stop there, and we're in the movie The Green Book. There's a scene. What an amazing recognition of my grandfather's legacy that yes. we were included. That there's that scene in the movie.
0: Why was your grandfather like that? What, what what was what was that about? How in Georgia at that time could a guy open a joint? and go against the grain that way. How did that happen, Stephanie? How did he do it?
2: I can only hypothesize. I was 12 when he died, and I didn't know this about my family until the Green Book, the movie, came out. Like, we didn't really talk about it. Really? It was fascinating to me. It was like, hey, how did we get in the movie? Well, you know, we're in the book. Like, what, what? And actually, I take that back. I do remember, I didn't know necessarily we were in the Green Book, but when I ran for office, and I was knocking on doors. And I had, my district was actually majority African-American and I was knocking on doors in African-American communities. I I actually, I shamelessly used the Stuckey's logo on my political material. People would identify with the name and they'd say, oh, you connected with Brand." And I would have African-Americans of a certain generation tell me, well, I don't know anything about you, but I'm going to vote for you because we could always stop in your stores. For real?
0: This is what they said? Yeah. yeah,
2: And mm-hmm. I had one very influential African-American preacher who endorsed me over, I was running against the head of the NAACP. Come on. For Cab County. Yes. In a majority African-American district. And I had a very influential preacher in the African-American community endorse me. And he said, I am doing this for your grandfather. Yeah. So that's when I actually did first know that Stuckey's was welcoming was when I was running for office. And my father said the same thing. My father being in Congress, when he first ran, his district was 30 percent African-American. And he said it was the black vote that elected him. They would come up to him and say, we are voting for you because your father let us stop. In your stores, this so is this is really beautiful. Cool this
0: is so. Awesome. But back
2: to your question: Why did he do that? I don't know. I never asked him. He died before I was aware of this fact. So this is my purely conjecture based on what I know of his life story. Is that he grew up poor in the Depression and was working the family farm, and he worked alongside African Americans. They they were all poor, and I know some whites in the South who were poor had the sense of wanting to feel like they were better than somebody. So they would put down African-Americans. But I think that there were a lot like my grandfather. I'd like to think this, the, the good in me wants to think this, that there were a lot like my grandfather who f- were the opposite of, we're all in this together. We're all working the farm together. Let's get along. And the story I know that I, I've i read and going through my grandfather's archives, when I bought the company, one of the few tangible things I got were about six boxes of archives. My grandfather's papers that hadn't, nobody had looked at them in 50 plus years. And I was reading through them and I read in a couple of the papers, a story of a man named John King, who was an African-American farmer who worked on the farm with my grandfather. And when my grandfather was driving around the countryside buying up pecans and really first starting Stuckey's, he and John King drove around together. It was because of John King, in part, that he was able to do the work that led to starting Stuckey's. John King remained working with Stuckey's throughout his life. One account said that John King actually owned a Stuckey's at one point, which made me really happy to know that because that was not a common thing for African Americans to own businesses, much less have a white man give them a business. So that made me really happy. But then I tracked down John King's family and I talked to his son, and his son said no, he never got a store. You know, I heard from my mom that she was disappointed. Another son said. No, that's not what I heard. I heard he just, you know, he he wasn't able to run a store. He didn't have the capacity. He he was not able to read or write. So, I've heard different conflicting stories, but what I have seen is the 25th anniversary of Stuckies, there was a commemorative edition of our business newsletter, there's featured in there a picture of my grandfather with John King and they're standing next to each other laughing. And they looked really happy. And it said, here's the story of of Mr. Stuckey and John King. That is concrete. And the other thing is one of the sons said, well, your grandfather used to take my dad uh, fishing. He would pick them up and they go to Florida and they go fishing. So that's kind of cool. Like they were friends. I don't know. I think it comes from my grandfather just working alongside African-Americans and they were part of the business. I mean, they... Help work the candy plants. They helped run the sign painting company. They drove the trucks. They were integral to the business, just like women were. There were a lot of secretaries, too. They were all women. They helped run the company. They weren't leadership positions for either women or African-Americans, but they were critical to the business.
0: I love the notion, and I love the fact that that it is, in fact, a fact, that it was real, that it really happened. I wonder how a white family coming in and seeing a black family at the same counter in the same store... How did that go down? I mean, in the segregated South, it's it's, lost
2: time. Unless people remember, unless anyone remembers and can tell me. Uh, And I found very few photos of African-Americans in the stores, but I actually found one last week going through papers and it's, you have to look pretty closely, but it's a photo of an old store and you can see there's like three white men at the gas pump and there's a African-American man walking in the store. Mm. So I was like, oh, there's, there's a picture. I got one, you know, like it's hard. I, there's so few photographs from that time. And and frankly, they weren't taking photographs because if they really made this a thing and publicized it, a lot of the white establishments that allowed African Americans to use their facilities were targets. Yeah, they were burnt. Yeah, they had a that's, big cross in their yard.
0: Yes, that is why I'm thinking. How did he? How did he make it happen? How did he do I don't it?
2: Don't think, I think he just did the right thing quietly? That I know from my from my aunt, his daughter. He had two kids, my father and my aunt, and my aunt did say he did the right thing quietly. I also know he gave a lot of scholarships to African-Americans to go to college in Eastman, but all that's lost to time. None of that was recorded.
0: And your grandfather grew up poor. Did he go to college? Probably not.
2: He had to drop out. He had to drop out of University of Georgia School of Law Uh during the Depression, which is, I'm a graduate there and my father's a graduate. So I think he would he knew my father graduated from Georgia law. I think he would have a sense of pride knowing that even though he dropped out, he paid for me to go. I was on the, I like to joke, I got a Stuckey scholarship. That,
0: nice.
2: <laughs> very special scholarship. You have to have the last name Stuckey to get it. Thanks to him, uh, I went to law school. He, that was paid for by him I had a I had a trust fund that paid for my education
0: I'm sure he would be very very proud Stephanie about your those your myriad accomplishments in law and in service to the community and what you're doing now with uh, again just an iconic brand let me just ask you one more thing just on the sustainability note your packaging how how do you approach packaging with you know, with plastic being the conundrum that it is for for merchants, what do you what are you thinking? What are you doing?
2: Oh Jeff, we, we came so close to ending without a really tough question. You threw the hard one at the this is, end. This is uh, what I this is what I do. Yeah, I, you know, I throw the softballs. Yeah. This is the hard one. Yeah. Here's the challenge. We have to have product that stays fresh what causes food products, packaged food products to go bad? Oxygen and light. So you need packaging that's opaque. You need packaging that is sucked out, you know, that has oxygen sucked out of it. And there's some, I'm going to get the term wrong, but there's some sort of nitrogen injection Nitrogen flush. Yeah,
0: there are different. Nitrogen mm -hmm. flush.
2: Thank you. Nitrogen flush you need to have these processes in place and then you need to have a really tight seal and it needs to be opaque. Well, that opaque plastic, that opaque material is not recyclable unless there's some source I'm unaware of. That What I am aware of is there are certain companies, TerraCycle's one, and I'm sure there are others. TerraCycle's one that I interacted with when I was at the city of Atlanta. And that's the company that takes, if you have kids, you'll recognize this, the Capri Sun juice box. A lot of schools will recycle them and they'll They have a special box where you drop them and they will repurpose them. So they can't recycle them, but they'll repurpose them and they'll make them into tote bags, for example. So they'll make them into other useful materials. And we could do that with our packaging if we had a designated drop off which would require a whole program that we don't have the budget for. And the companies actually have to pay to have that product made. And then we'd have to sell the product for an exorbitant price. It would literally be a $200 bag made of old Stucky's pecan bags. And then you have to sanitize them. I'm sorry, that's a challenge. Here's what we do do. Our displays and our packaging are recycled content corrugated cardboard that we buy from from Pratt, which is a Georgia-based company, All of their corrugated cardboard is recycled content. We're trying to do what we can. And then we source local as much as possible, especially with our food product. I'm trying to have as many of the products that we source be certified Georgia ground from the Georgia Department of Ag, and we're a Georgia Grown certified company. But the packaging is a real challenge for anyone in the food business. If you figure that out, if you crack that nut, got to end with a pun, you want to do the right thing. It's just, you got it. Sustainability, you know, has three components. It's the environment, but it's also economics. It's equity. It's environmental justice. Is making sure that you're including that human component. So if we're producing a product, are people being treated fairly? Are they getting a living wage? All of that. And we're working on the wage issue, just bought a plant, but we got to get profitable. So you got to be sustainable profitably also. So it's a challenge.
0: Yeah. Be happier not in the straight restaurant business because uh, the people who've just had their careers completely obliterated by the pandemic and Having a lot of conversations about this, about this has really been a house of cards that's been built up since really post-World War II also, Stephanie, right? Where if you really think about from farm to table and then just make that circle, it's completely flawed. You've got workers in the field that aren't making a living wage, farmers that are barely keeping it together, Restaurant workers uh, in the back of the house who are also not making a living wage, and everybody is is looking for cheap food, and we're poisoning ourselves while we're eating. This is a whole nother conversation, a whole nother episode, but I'm inspired by the fact that you, because you come with this toolkit, Stephanie, so you're a dangerous CEO, in the best sense of the word you know you've got this information you've got this experience just the fact that we can have this conversation that you're that you're troubled by it is is beautiful to me that you're thinking about it that you're sweating those details you don't have the answers now that's okay but that you're thinking about it this is how we're going to build great american companies and businesses and initiatives by I, I had an epiphany once when I was working back at Four Seasons with my team and I, I came to our pre-shift meeting and I said, you know what guys? I realized that saying the devil's in the details. It's not. It's God. God is in the details. This is where yes. the beauty, this is where the alignment, this is where the connectivity, this is, this, I hear the snaps. This mm-hmm. is where it all happens, man. This is, this is everything right here. God is in the details. So we need to sweat the details. So the fact that you, Stephanie, are sweating those details. Tells me that Stucky's is is all, it's all, it was a special brand. It is a special brand, but man, I think the sky's the limit for you.
2: It is in the details. And I will, I will make one quick statement about the, you talked about poisoning our bodies with the foods we eat. I am very health conscious. I'm a vegetarian. I watch what I eat. And we, my partner agrees with me. We're getting the high fructose corn syrup out of our product. We're experimenting with tapioca syrup, which Uh is actually, so amazingly delicious. The pecans just crunch. It's so crisp. It's amazing. It's actually better than the high fructose corn syrup. And we're also looking at rice syrup, but I think we might go with the tapioca, but we're working on it. It's a process because so much of what's available is the crap. And here's the call for the listeners. If you as a consumer believe this, don't buy the crap. Spend a little extra money to support companies that are paying more for a living wage for their companies, are paying more to have the better ingredients. And that comes with a cost because we can't function as a business if we don't make a profit. We don't make a profit. I mean, what's profit? It's like you've got to cut cost and and you've got to have your price strategy. And so you got to have the price high enough that you're going to cover your costs and then have a profit. If we're going to increase some of our costs to have higher quality ingredients and ensure that we have a well-paid workforce, we're going to have higher pricing.
0: We are literally all in this together. It's hard for us to see that this is not about the near term. This is about how we live on this planet in a sustainable way. And it's not just some liberal tree hugger kind of conversation. This is about our health. I was talking with a chef the other day, and you know i th- I said it might be interesting, chef, to have a conversation with wellness companies with pharma companies, and that there yes. should be a stipend that comes from them because if if, if we're eating better then we're not we 're not dependent upon the the pharma and the meds we we're, we're healthier we're not in the doctor 's office right I mean and then, I mean, then you you just blow everything up. Yeah, so. I'm
2: very mindful of that as a purveyor of candy. Yeah, I'm mindful of that. <laughs> right. I, I seriously, that, that's one of the things that keeps me up at night. Yeah, one of the many things. And so my rationale, and it's more than a rationale. I can't do this unless I'm authentic. I can't sell this candy unless I believe in it, which is why I absolutely had to buy the manufacturing plant because yeah. I do believe in it because we make it ourselves. Yes, it's got the stucky name on it. My God, it's gonna live up to the stucky brand. Beautiful. So we're gonna put high quality ingredients and it will be an indulgence. And yes, we will have some sweets in there. It's a treat. Treat yourself. We're gonna put high quality, fresh ingredients that as much as possible, we're gonna have them locally sourced. And the pecan is the healthiest nut. So we're we're doing what we can to make a product that is a wonderfully delicious treat that has some health benefits to it. I'm not going to say it's like 100% the most healthy thing you've ever had in your life because it's candy, but it's going to be really awesome, delicious candy that has pecans in it.
0: If you're going to indulge, and we all should at times, right? We all should. If you're going to indulge, treat yourself, man, and take a trip down memory lane and back again. Because I think while this is, it's beautiful, Stephanie, because this is in a way a backwards looking company, very much looking forward. You're the right woman at the right time. I think your grandfather would be very,
2: We're not. I I, I, say we're not living in the past. We're learning from the past.
0: Mm, For sure. We're moving Uh, forward. Yeah, you're moving forward. I'm inspired by your passion for this business and your vision, and I wish you a ton of success.
2: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: I'm so excited for Stephanie and her team and for their journey reimagining and re energizing an American family brand that has finally come home. You can find out more about Stucky's and even order directly from them at Stucky's.com. It doesn't matter whether you say pecan, puckcan, or pecan, as Stephanie and I came up with, just eat them, enjoy them and celebrate a piece of American road trip nostalgia that's very much present and looking forward to the future. Thanks again for hanging out with Stephanie and myself today. I hope you'll join me again with new episodes dropping every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Mountain Time. Until then, stay safe and remember, you'll find no bed of roses wherever you find fine podcasts. Thanks and see you soon. Bye.